Welcome to Sermons from Iceland, a podcast that highlights the most recent sermons from Lofstofan Baptista Kirka, a Bible-based church in the Reykjavik, Iceland area. Pastor Gunnar Ingi Gunnarsson and the ministry staff of Lofstofan are grateful that you're joining us for today's study in God's Word as a supplement to your weekly routine of meeting with your local church to worship Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The following was recorded on Sunday, April 3rd, 2022. Today's message is titled, How the Good News of Jesus Meets Our Identity. If you've been following along with us, you know, we've we've been going, our series has been titled, How the Good News of Jesus Meets X, and whatever that is, be it war, be it parenting, be it marriage. And today we're talking about identity. And this is a really broad, a very broad topic. And at, at one point I, I, I was joking, but I, at one point I was like, maybe I should just read the New Testament to them. And that will be, that's just what we'll do because, and maybe some selected Old Testament readings because the Bible has so much to say on this. And I had to narrow it down quite a bit. So I imagine as we go through this, you're going to go, wait a minute, why didn't you talk about that? Or why didn't you talk about this verse? Or why didn't you believe me? There was a lot of them and I have to cut a lot of them out. Um, so we're going to focus on three passages today. We're going to focus on Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. We're going to be in Philippians 3 and we're going to be in Matthew 16, verse 24. So that's our, that's our outline. But yes, there are countless other passages we could have gone to um, and could go to. And I'll reference some of them as we, as we go through. But first of all, before we jump into um, the texts, Um, I want to lay a little bit of groundwork here. I want to work on our definitions a bit. So first of all, what do you identify as? And you can answer me. You can shout it out. Like, how do you, what are, what are things you consider part of your identity? Go. Christian. Okay. Good. Male. Okay. Ginger. I didn't know. I didn't know people identified as ginger, but okay. (laughs) There you go. What's up? Icelandic. Someone else said something. A parent. Okay. An immigrant. Brother, you're just on a roll, man. (laughs) Students. Yeah. You're an IB student. So that's, yeah, that's most of your life. So I'm sorry. A grandmother. Okay. A daughter of the father. Amen. Okay. Yeah. There's, Tons of things we can identify as. There's, yeah, it can be a nationality, it can be a religion, it can be a gender identity, it can be all sorts of things. And I mean, we can, from things that we that are maybe a little more shallow to things that are really deep, that are right at the core of our being, we can we can go through all sorts of levels. And it seems to me that the concept of identity is also tied to worship. And I don't want to get too abstract here because we could go really far down this rabbit hole. And I did this week, but we're not going to, we're not going to do that today. Um, but you know what we identify as, especially as we get deeper and deeper, it's how we define ourselves. Like when we introduce ourselves to people, when we talk to people, what do you tell them about yourselves? You know, if you talk to me and you ask me, Oh, what do you do? It's like, well, okay. Yeah, I'm a, I'm one of the elders at lost which, by the way, I see a lot of new faces and I didn't introduce myself. My name is Elliot and I am one of the elders of Lost of here. And I'm glad to see you this morning. And so if you ask me what I do, you know, well, 
yeah, I work, I work for a church. I, I am a student. Uh, you know, what are your hobbies? Well, I, I'm, I'm a drummer. You know, I, I like to read all sorts of things. Oh, nice. Well, we're not quite well done, Michael and Matt. <laughs> That's the thing. We also, we need to be sure to thank the, the production team because we only ever notice them when something goes wrong. But most of the time things go right and they just go unrecognized. So thank you, Michael. So Michael's had a bit of a whirlwind of a morning, I think so, but he's come through on the other side. Thank you. <laughs> so we do have slides. That's good. This doesn't identify you, Michael. Remember that. Okay. <laughs> um, there's a lot of different, you know, if you ask me something a little more deep, deeper in my identity, I might say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. You know, I, I serve a living God. You know, I'm a daughter or I'm daughter. I'm a son of Jesus. Well, of God, not of Jesus. Jesus is my brother, but you know, yeah, I think you guys kind of see where I'm going, but a lot of what we build our identity on has to do with what we worship and we all worship something. It's just a question of what. And I did a little bit of research on the etymology of the word worship. I'm not a linguist, so we're not going to go too far down this, but basically it's divided into two words, worth and ship. And it has to do with what you ascribe, what you put worth into. That's what you worship. And so we worship God because we ascribe worth and value to him. And because he is innately so full of glory of instinctive worth. That's why we worship God. But we also worship to a certain extent, we worship athletes when they perform because they do feats that the rest of us will never be able to do. We worship musicians because of what they can do. And that list goes on and on and on. And so identity and worship, I think are two concepts that are tied together. And so that's the main point I would like you to take away from today. If you don't take anything else away, the main point is that God wants your whole identity to be wrapped up in him because he is the only thing that can bear the weight of our worship. God is the only thing that can bear the weight of you ascribing worth to yourself in something. Everything else is ultimately going to fall short, but God is the only one that can hold up under that. And so I'd like, before we jump into these verses, I'd actually like to give a bit of an example from my own life. I'd like to share a bit about how God's been sanctifying me and has been helping me to actually find more of my identity in him as opposed to other things. And so I don't know how, I don't know if you guys will relate to any or all of this, but this is where I'm at and this is what God's doing with me. Um, so I've grown up in a Christian home. I grew up, you know, with parents who are, you know, they're still married by the grace of God. And I'm really, the more people I meet, the more I realize how rare that is that my parents are still together. They still love one another. Um, and they raised me and my brother and sister. They raised us to know God and to love God and they raised us well. And they were a little too strict at times, but that's okay. And I grew up overall as a good kid. I followed the rules. I did well in school. When I was in high school, as Matt can attest, I was a good kid. I, you know, I, I didn't do drugs. I didn't give in to any of the peer pressures of my high school. When I went to college, when I went to university, I immediately joined the church. I started serving. I got plugged in. All throughout my life, I've done the right thing. Theologically, of course, we know that's not true. But in terms of just human understandings, 
I'm no, I'm what's known as a goody two shoes and people make fun of me for it. And that's fine. And that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. Um, we'll, we'll get through it. And I've realized that that's become part of how I view myself. And God showed me quite brutally that that's part of how I identify. And I have certain expectations about the world because of that, even though I know that life isn't fair. I know that God doesn't owe us anything, but I've kind of subconsciously, not even consciously, I've subconsciously believed nonetheless that, well, I've done these things. Therefore, I don't know what, but something good should happen. And that's just simply not true. And as I've started to process things that have happened to me over the last couple of years, even though it's been painful and it's been really difficult, I'm realizing more and more just how much God is stripping this away from me in order to have my identity be more founded in him. Because I realize now more and more, wow, I was, I was trying to put worth into something that wasn't God. And when it got attacked, it actually couldn't hold up. It crumbled right away. And I found throughout all of this, I found that God was indeed faithful. The bedrock of my faith has not been shaken throughout all of this. And I can, even though it's been hard, I can say that God has been true. You know, we, we quote every week, we end every service with the great commission. And one of the points in that is that Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. God's been with me through every step of the way here. Romans 8, 38 and 39 says that absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God. Even death can't separate us from it. And I found that, that's, I found that to be true. And I've always kind of viewed sanctification. I, I realized this as I started going through this. I realized I viewed sanctification kind of like a classroom. Kind of like, you know, you, you, you move on year by year, you learn more and more, you know, or maybe, maybe it's like learning an instrument, you know, you start really basic, but the more you keep going, um, you know, the more notes, you know, chords, you know, rudiments, if you're a drummer, um, you know, the more things, the more building blocks you have and the more competent you are at this thing. And I think I kind of viewed sanctification like that. You know, you just, the longer you walk with God, the more you become like Jesus. And that makes sense. Well, the Bible doesn't describe sanctification that way. Peter uses the example of gold being melted so as to remove impurities. Gold goes from a solid state to a liquid state. And now gold doesn't have any feelings. I know that, but it's still it's not a pleasant process. And John describes God as a gardener with like hedge cutters or shearers or something, cutting off limbs of, of branches. So like pruning them so that they'll bear more fruit. Sanctification was never promised as an easy process. But we know that God is faithful through it all. And we know that even though, even through the storms of life, Jesus promises to be right there with us. And he doesn't promise us a bump-free life. You know, there are speed bumps all over. There are storms all over. But he does promise to get us safely through to the other side. And what's more, Jesus himself can understand and sympathize with us. You know, in Hebrews 4, it says that we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, yet in all of this was without sin. Jesus came and lived as a human, 
he was fully God, but he was also fully human. And he was tempted like we are, yet without sin. He was abandoned by his friends. He was betrayed by his friends, yet without sin. He experienced all the ups and downs, all the disappointments, all the everything that we experience, he experienced. And yet he did so without sin. And then he took all of our sins on himself on the cross and paid the price for them. He was the sacrifice for them. And so now when we run to God, as we sang, when we run to the father, we're not running to a God who has only ever sat on a throne in heaven and doesn't really know what it's like to be on earth. We're actually running to a sympathetic high priest who knows exactly what it's like to be human. And that's the gospel. Romans 3, 23 and 24 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I think we've, Gunnar and I have both said this quite a bit. Um, this is an archery term. It means to miss the mark. And it's not like we missed the mark, like, oh, you were almost at the bullseye. Good job. You know, close, but no cigar. Like, no, it wasn't that. It's, you didn't even hit the target. You didn't even, like, you can barely handle the bow. That's how woefully short we have fallen of God's standard. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 24 says that we, we were justified by his blood as a free gift. And this free gift is open to anyone who would come and surrender their lives to Jesus. A little later on in Romans, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And as we talk about identity, that's so folded into the gospel already. Like Jesus came so that we would have new identity in him. I, you know, I was, Michael's saying at our house right now, and we were talking about this and he reminded me of first Corinthians. I believe it's six eleven, um, where Paul is listing all these former, these sins that the Corinthian church used to be a part of, you know, they used to be adulterers, idolaters, all, all sorts of things. And Paul says, and such were some of you, but now you've been washed clean. Now you're children of God. There's a new identity. The things we used to be, we no longer are anymore. And so we, our identity's changed. The things that we used to build our lives on, we no longer do that anymore. And so now let's finally, let's jump into scripture. So open with me to Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. And I believe it'll be on the, it will be, it'll be on on the slide. Thank you, Michael. So Matthew seven verses 24 through 27 says, and this is Jesus talking. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. When the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And so we've already said that identity is, has a lot to do with how we define ourselves and what we put our worth in. And Jesus here is telling us to build our lives, to build our identity on him. And he is talking here first and foremost about obedience to his commands, to what he has said. But I think these, I, I, I just, I don't think we can separate these things. 
We need to build our lives on Jesus, on what Jesus has told us and what he's given us on him, his very person and his words. And that raises the question of why does God tell us to build our life on him? Isn't that kind of arrogant of him? Isn't that kind of intolerance of him? Maybe he's a jerk for doing this. You know, he's given us one way. How do we know that God even has the right to demand this? How do we know that God is good? How can we trust him in this? Well, to answer some of those, first of all, God does have the right to ask this of us because he created us. He's our creator. All of us, everyone in this room has inherent worth because all of us are image bearers of Jesus or of God. Jesus is God, but you know, of the Trinity. And so Jesus has the right because, well, we were created for him. Gunnar quotes this a lot, and I think it's really helpful here. I forget who, I actually forget who quotes it. I shouldn't because he quotes it enough, but um, it might be Augustine. I don't know. But he says, our hearts are restless for you until they, no, you have made us for yourself. And so our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. I actually don't remember who quoted that, but Augustine, nice. Okay. We're created to be in relationship with God. And when we sin, when Adam and Eve sinned, and then when we sin, that relationship gets broken and something's not right. And so, and that's why that's the whole point. Jesus came and, and died so that we could be reconciled to God so that we could be made new in God again. And so Jesus does have the right to demand this of us because he is our creator and he is our Lord and our savior. And that ties into how we know that God is good. How can we trust the God who asks this of us, who commands this even of us? How can we trust that God? Well, again, Romans 8, I actually want to turn there and read this. Um, so if you want to turn with me to Romans 8. Starting in verse 31. So this is Romans 8, 31. It won't be on the, on the I don't have a slide for it, but um, it says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so that's how we know that God is good because Jesus came because nothing is ever able to separate us from the love of God. That's how we know God is good. You may remember in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus stands up and says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you for my, I'm trying to quote this from memory for my burden is easy. And my yoke is light. 
the standard for coming to God is being burdened and heavy laden. It's being weary. It's not some like, oh, I have to clean up my life. The standard is come weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And make no mistake, there is a yoke and a burden when we follow Jesus, when we begin to build our identity, when we build our lives on the rock of Jesus, we are carrying a burden. There is a yoke, but it's easy and it's light because Jesus has already run the race for us. He's already gone before us. He already took the cross, the shame. He took it all. And so now we walk in repentance in forgiveness and in grace because Jesus already paved the way for us. We don't come having to like do all the right things and like just try and not mess up, you know, and just hope that dad doesn't get angry or something. Like that's not, that's not the relationship we have. You and I are going to mess up. I mess up every single day. I sin in my heart and my thoughts, my attitudes. But the, the Christian life is defined by repentance, not by perfection. And so our lives are ones of continual just awe and repentance before God. And look with me at what this parable says. You know, Jesus tells us to build our lives on his word because look what happens. You have two men here who are presumably, you presumably have two men here, or two groups of people, I guess, you know, who are building their house, their houses. One builds it on the rock, one builds it on the sand. Presumably they're made of the same materials. Presumably they're in similar locations. The weather seems to be equally bad wherever they are. But one person or one group actually spends their time properly building their house. You know, they clear the rubble away, they flatten the earth, they dig down all the way deep to the bedrock so that the foundation will be secure. Whereas someone, the other group, the other man, maybe he just wants his house up quickly, doesn't care as much. And so he builds his house on sand, doesn't take the time to dig down to find the rock. It's just, it's a shallow foundation. And the storm eventually does come. The winds, the rains, and the house that has been poorly founded, the house that was maybe rushed in its construction process falls down and the ruin is great. But the house that was built on the rock withstands. And the thing is, brothers and sisters, the storms will come. They will come in this life and they will come on the day of judgment. And what is your life going to have been built on? What is your house going to have been built on? Will it be built on Jesus or will it be built on things that can't actually withstand the weight of your worship? Because what you've built your life on will eventually be revealed and it may be revealed in this life and that's a mercy from God, but it will certainly be revealed on the last day when everyone, everyone's work, everyone's life is tested. And are you going to put your trust in Jesus, the one whose righteousness is given freely to us, or are we going to trust in our own something else to give ourselves worth and purpose? And so turn with me now to Philippians 3. We're going to 
we're going to read at least part of this chapter. Probably won't read the whole thing, but I want to consider the example of Paul in this as we, as we consider what we identify with and how we, how we kind of build our lives, what we, what we build our lives on. I want to consider the example of the apostle Paul. And so, yeah, I'm going to read verses three. We're going to go through three through 11 and then also verse 20. It says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law of the lameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And verse 20 says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to consider Paul because Paul had a, a pedigree here that he could very easily have built his life on. He could have very easily have rested his laurels, his case on his pedigree here. And there are some things here. This, this list may not sound super impressive to us. We might be going, yeah, okay, who cares? Um, but when Paul's writing this, this is like the best religious pedigree you could have. Everything he had been raised by parents who obeyed the law to the T. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He's of the people of Israel. This is God's chosen people. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. This had been not one of the tribes who had broken away or who had been unfaithful. This is like, this is a good tribe to be from. He is a Hebrew of Hebrews. At this point, Israel was spread out all over the Greek world. They'd been Hellenized. Many of them were speaking Greek. A lot of them were even reading the Old Testament in Greek at this point. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He does everything in, well, in Hebrew. As to the law of Pharisee, um, Paul joined one of the, I'm not super familiar with all the sects of Judaism and whatnot, but Paul had joined one of the strictest, strictest branches of Judaism. Like if anyone was going to earn their way to heaven, it would be these people. Like, I mean, they kept everything down to a T. And as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, when, when this, this way broke off from Judaism and didn't follow the traditions, Paul persecuted them with everything he had. He was zealous for the traditions. He, and I believe he says this in Galatians actually, which I know the, the youth group has been, has been going through. And he, you know, he was so zealous for the traditions, for the, for the Torah of his fathers that he persecuted the church with all of his might. And as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Much like the young ruler who comes to Jesus in Luke 18 and says, I've done everything. Paul could, as near as humans can say, could actually say that. And of course, 
This isn't talking about Paul's heart. He's talking about his external actions. But then look at verse seven. For whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Fun fact, the original Greek word is a lot stronger than that. But since we're in a church, I won't say it. It is in the Bible. I actually really did think about that, but I, you know, I didn't have time to run it through good night and I don't want to. So anyway, just know that the original Greek word is a lot stronger. And so, and, and that's important actually, like all these things that he had built his life on, like he measured his religiosity and what he was against even. Like he had kept, he had kept the law. He was against all the right things. He had all the right theology. He had all the right, like he was from the right people group, all of it. And it amounted to absolutely nothing in the eyes of God. Isaiah says, well, God says in Isaiah, that your good deeds are as filthy rags before me. And it, God's not saying that he doesn't want us to do good works, but good works when we use them to prop ourselves up, when we try and build a righteousness of our own, when we, we try and get ourselves to a point where somehow we put God in our debt, the best we can possibly do is like a soiled garment. That's the best we can do. Paul needed the righteousness that comes from Jesus. And he says that, he says, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. And that's the thing is now Paul, Paul can joyfully suffer the loss of these things because he's not defined by them anymore. He doesn't put his worth in them anymore. So he can joyfully suffer this loss, which is actually gain for him. As he says later, this is actually gain for him because now he has the imputed righteousness of Christ. Imputed, by the way, is just a word that means transferred. So we as Christians, if you're a Christian in here, you have Jesus's imputed righteousness. What that means is because Jesus died for your sins, if you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God, when he looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus on you. He doesn't see all your sin and all the debt that you owe. Rather, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. And that's what Paul gained. And he could count all his education, all his good works. I mean, I think I was a good kid. Paul was like the ultimate good kid. Like he could count all of that as a flaming pile of trash because he had the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And that's what his life became built on. And actually, Paul, this is something uh, we won't go through all of this right now because I don't think we have time, but this is an interesting study to do. And I'll at least give you the references for it. We see Paul's humility and kind of his understanding of himself in God, of this new identity that God's given him. We see how that grows throughout his letters. So for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he describes himself as the least of the apostles. And now, of course, the apostles were those who walked with Jesus, who lived with Jesus. These are the ones who, who God, um, who Jesus, I'm sorry, like walked with and like just taught and equipped and empowered them. And they were, they were sent out to get the church started when Jesus was taken up into heaven. 
and the the apostles were given special authority from God. They were, you know, to teach and to pass on what Jesus had had given them. And so Paul counts himself as the least of the apostles. Okay, this is still humility on his part. I want to be clear. I'm not knocking Paul here for any of this. I just I want to show how how his understanding grew the longer he walked with God. And so he he has himself as the least of the apostles. And then in Ephesians three later on. Verse, uh, verse eight, he describes himself as the least of all the saints. And now saints, just so you know, are not super Christians. They're not like, you know, St. Dominic or whoever. Um, saints are all us who are in Christ. When you're in Christ, you are now a saint. And it doesn't mean you're special. It doesn't mean you're, uh, yeah, like a super Christian or anything. That's not what that means. It's just we, the family of God. We are now citizens and saints. And so Paul is like, okay, now I see I'm the least of all Christians is essentially what he's saying. And then in his first letter to Timothy, in first Timothy one, he says, he's, he's explaining the gospel to Timothy again. He says, Christ died to save sinners of whom I am chief. Your translation might say of whom I am foremost. And so as Paul walked with God as he was sanctified, which again is a process. It's not something that happens right away. This is a process. Paul saw himself more and more clearly. He saw the weight of his sin, you know, and, and in, even in his good pedigree, his heart was probably trash. Like he probably judged people. You know, he may never have committed adultery. I'm sure he had wandering eyes. He was arrogant. He murdered innocent women and children and men too, for that matter. He falsely imprisoned people. He did so many horrible things that God forgave him of. And as he continued to walk with God, he began to see himself more and more clearly. He saw the weight of his sin and he understood more and more the sacrifice of Jesus. So he goes from considering himself the least of the apostles to I am the chief of sinners. The chief of sinners is not a title we aspire to, by the way. That is like, I mean, we're including everyone who's ever been born and whoever will be born other than Jesus. And ultimately, Paul's identity couldn't hold up under the weight of his sin. It couldn't hold up under what he identified in couldn't hold up under, under his worship. The only thing that could hold up was Jesus. And that's why he attains, he's trying to attain the resurrection from the dead. And I don't have these verses up, up but I want to read these because he continues this line of thought. He says, not that I have obtained this or, this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forwards what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, and now I'll tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And this is what Paul is looking towards now. This is what Paul is building his life on now. This is the bedrock of Jesus that Paul is building his life on. And if Paul considered himself the chief of all sinners, and if God's love and grace was enough to save even Paul, then God's love and grace is enough to save even us. And so lastly, turn with me to Matthew 16. We're going to end with this verse. This is Matthew 16, verse 24, and I believe it'll be up there. It says, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Now, remember our main point has been that God wants our whole identity to be wrapped up in him because nothing else can hold up under the weight of our worship. Anything we try to find our worth in, nothing else is going to hold up. And this is Jesus's call to us is to come and to be his disciples. And he lays out what that looks like for us. And I want to be clear about something because Christians all, all across the board are guilty of doing this. When we, when we share the gospel with non-believers, we tend to, we kind of minimize it. We don't mean to, I think, I think, I think we don't mean to, but we generally go, yeah, come to God. All your sins will be forgiven. Things will be good. The thing is, is the call to discipleship is actually high. Jesus himself actually dissuaded people from following him because he knew that the cost would be too much. He knew that, or maybe not even that it would be too much, but he knew that the cost would be really high. And Jesus warns us of this. He, it, it actually costs us quite a bit to follow after Jesus. It's not all roses and sunshine or sunflowers and sunshine. I don't know flowers very clearly, but the cost of discipleship is incredibly high and it's going to look different for each one of us. The cost for me may not be the same as the cost for you, but this is what Jesus calls us to do, to deny ourselves. And this is hard in the day and age we live in. We live in a world of give yourself whatever the heck you want. We live in a world of don't say no, like just have it, take it, have whatever you want, make your own decisions. Jesus says, no, deny yourself. Don't build your identity on yourself. Build it on me. Next, he says, take up your cross. To take up one's cross means there's going to be suffering. Because as we say no to the things of the world, that's going to be hard to do. And that's a, this is part of the cost. And, and, and you might be going, but wait a minute, like Jesus said that his burden was easy and his yoke was light. What's this about hardship? It's hard because we live in a world that is constantly pulling at our desires and our sinful flesh is fighting us. We desire to be our own masters and our own kings. 
And that's why the cost is high because it involves saying, okay, yes, I want to determine everything for myself, but I'm not going to. I'm actually going to surrender that to Jesus. And I'm going to be what Jesus wants me to be, not necessarily what I want to be. And perhaps those two things will align. Sometimes they do. But more often than not, Jesus calls us to be something that maybe we didn't intend for ourselves. I certainly didn't intend to go through my last couple of years. If it had been up to me, I wouldn't have given that to myself, but God did. And now my, my faith is stronger. My relationship with God is deeper and I am closer to God because of it. And that was for my good. And that's a good thing. And so we deny ourselves. We take up our cross, follow me. This is Jesus talking. So we follow after Jesus. That means we don't follow ourselves. It means we don't follow other people. It means we follow Jesus. And Jesus is going to tell us things and have us do things sometimes that the people around you, even the close trusted people around you, sometimes don't understand and don't get. Like, Gunnar may come to me with something and say, and he's just, Jesus is leading him into this. And I could tell him, dude, that's such a bad idea. You should never do that. Or I don't think that's what God has for you. And then Gunnar's left with the choice. Do I follow Jesus? Or do I listen to Elliot? And I really hope you'd choose Jesus. Now that's just, and I'm not saying that advice from people around you is a bad thing. I'm not knocking that. But what I am saying is we follow Jesus and no one else. We don't follow the trends or the currents of this world. We don't follow the thinking of this age. We follow Jesus. And it's a high cost. And it's not one to be taken lightly. This is not something to go, yeah, okay, I'll do it. And then a year in, you're like, okay, never mind. That's not how this works. And so brothers and sisters, if anyone, whether you're a Christian or not, well, first let me address Christians, Christians in here. I want to challenge you, and especially as we take communion together and as we, we see someone get baptized, I just want to challenge you and to ask the Holy Spirit to move in your heart, to reveal any part of yourself that you haven't surrendered to Jesus, that you haven't given over to him. Ask the Holy Spirit to conform you more and more to the image of Jesus. Build your life on the bedrock that is Jesus. Nothing else is going to withstand the storms of life. If you're not a believer in here, then I would plead with you to weigh the cost, to weigh the cost of discipleship, to consider Jesus in his words. And I hope you'll follow him. And so actually we're going to get to do, we have two ordinances that we practice at this church, communion and baptism. And we're actually going to get to see one of our own put his identity publicly in Jesus. We're going to get to see someone take that step being obedient to Jesus and publicly identifying with the people of God. And that's a great privilege. Um, so they'll get ready while we're doing this, while we're, we're doing a, while we're doing a song. Um, and the other thing we do is communion and we do this well, COVID permitting. We do this every week and Jesus gave us both, both of these, these ordinances point us to Jesus. Baptism is we've been buried with Jesus and we've been made alive again with him. We have a new identity, a new life now. And communion, something that we do, well, here at Love Summon, we do it every week. So 
Some churches do it every month. Some do it every quarter. The Bible doesn't prescribe a frequency. But when we do it, we're proclaiming and remembering the death of our Savior, Jesus. We're remembering and acknowledging our own sinfulness and the need of Jesus to die on our behalf. And so this is a time for reflection and for, well, just to be solemn and to be serious. This is a time to remember how our sin, our sin sent Jesus to the cross. If you're not a Christian in here, I would ask that you not partake of in communion. This is something that's, it wouldn't be appropriate. This is something that Christians do. This is a way that we remember and celebrate the death of Jesus. And for those of you that are believers in here, use this time to pray. Use this time to thank Jesus for dying. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal any areas of your life that you're still holding on to, any sins that you haven't repented of. And then let's joyfully take of this together. So the worship team will lead us in a song. Um, just whenever you're ready, you can come up and take the elements. Um, and then I will come back and lead us in, in communion. Goodnight is going to baptize Daniel. And then we'll end with one last song together. Oh, and I'm going to pray to close us because, yeah. <laughs> Heavenly Father, Jesus, thank you that you died for us. Jesus, thank you that you came and you lived the life that we should live, that we're supposed to live, but can't. And thank you that you died for our sins. Thank you that you died to make us right with God. Thank you that you transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. God, I thank you for just how I've gotten to see your faithfulness in my own life. Thank you that you've allowed me to experience your promises and the fulfillment of those. And God, I pray for anyone here who maybe, I don't know what they're going through. I don't know, God, I don't know where you have them in their sanctification process, but I pray that they would sense your presence. I pray that they would be able to say and join us in saying, great is thy faithfulness. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would reveal yourself to those who don't know you. I pray that you would touch their hearts. I pray that you would make yourself known. And I pray that it would be clear that even though the cost is high in discipleship, that it is worth it, that the love of God is worth it. And so God, we praise you. We thank you. And we thank you for Daniel. And we rejoice in getting to hear how you saved him and getting to see him publicly declare that he is a new creature and that the old is passing away, that he is now a minister of reconciliation. Anything else that he used to consider himself or used to identify with is now, it's passing away. The old is gone. Behold, new things are here. So God, we praise you. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Sermons from Iceland, a weekly podcast highlighting the Sunday teaching ministry of Lofstofan Baptiste Kirka in Reykjavik, Iceland. If you have a desire to see the gospel spread in Iceland, consider partnering with the Iceland Project. For more information, go to theicelandproject.org. If you live in Iceland or plan on visiting Iceland soon, make plans to worship with us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. 
Our address is Fagrating 2A, Kopavar, only 7 miles or 12 kilometers southeast of downtown Reykjavik. You can reach Pastor Gunnar via the Lofstofan Facebook page or by email. His address is lofstofan at lofstofan.is. Join us next week for another Bible-based and Jesus-centered message on Sermons from Iceland. Iceland.